Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you so much for bringing us all here. And we come from different stories, different backgrounds, but there is one God. There's one Jesus, there's one baptism, and there's one way to you, Father. And would we know that and rejoice in that and tell others about that, that we would celebrate not only here in this life together as the family of God, but we look forward to your invincible kingdom where we will see you face to face and we will eat together and enjoy you forever and ever. In your name we pray. Amen. God does what he wants. God does what he wants. He gives grace as he chooses. Again, God does what he wants. Does that offend you? Does it amaze you? Does it puzzle you? Do you not care? God does what he wants. He's not bound by us. He's not bound by directions. He's not bound by our cultural norms. He's not bound by our passion or our zeal or how good we think we are. He's not bound by our limited knowledge or how much we think we know. God cannot be contained. He will not conform to the ideas of what we should be or do. Tradition does not determine what God does. We do not dictate his grace, nor does our gifting or abilities. God does what he wants because he is God alone. There's no other God. He is totally in control of everything. Where the wind blows, where the birds land, he is sovereign. And he determines where his grace his, goes. If you've ever heard this song, Amazing Grace, it's one of the most famous songs in the world. And one of the verses in that song is, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to, what? Fear. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And it's strange to think about grace and fear, but the idea is that we are not in control of our lives, that God is ultimately in control. So God's grace means that he sovereignly chooses who to bless at his own discretion. And we see a glimpse of this, this glimpse into God's graciousness in chapters 25 and 26. So we read in chapter 25. Abraham married another wife. So Abraham is this man we've been reading about since chapter 11. We, we, we've seen him walk with God and, and God's story with him and how this curse has come up upon this world at the very beginning of time where people were with God, but they chose their own way. They rebelled, and now this curse has entered the world, this rebellion, this sin, and everyone is infected by it. And it's a downward spiral as people, genera generation after generation, rebel against God and then God makes a promise to this man, Abraham. He says, through you, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And through you, you will bless the world. Essentially, God is saying, you will reverse this curse through your family. So this is Abraham. And he married another wife. And if you've been following with us, at this point, Abraham is 138 years old. 
So he just married again. His wife Sarah had just passed away. He still got a little bit in him. Marries again, 138, feeling good. All right, Abraham, that's great. So he married a wife whose name was Keturah. She gave birth to Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's descendants were the Asherites, Lethushites, and the Lemites. Liamuites, something like that. Midian's sons were Ephah, Epher, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldah. These are all the descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Now, those are great children's names, by the way. If you know people who are going to have kids, you just say, hey, check out Genesis 25. Jokshan. No one's going to be named Jokshan. Might have a hard time at school, but, but it'll be unique. So what's up with these genealogies, though? Because these are throughout the Bible. And you can look at something like that and be like, oh, that was just, that was meaningless, that was boring. I'm hoping by the end of this, not only will you learn about the graciousness of God, you will come to love the genealogies of the Bible. You'll look at it and you'll just fawn over it. Oh, genealogies, this is amazing. We'll get there. Continuing in verse 5. Abraham gave everything he owned to his son Isaac. But before he died, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, which at that time was like a second wife. This wasn't something that God wanted. God intended marriage to be between a man and a woman alone. This concubine, that's a second wife, that's what that means. And sent them off to a land in the east away from Isaac. Abraham lived for 175 years, and he died at the ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life, I bet. He breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. His son Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar, the Hittite. This was the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites and where he had buried his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who settled near Beer Lahairoi in the Negev. So what we're reading about is the final stages of Abraham's life. He died. We've come to see Abraham in his faults, in his joys, in his highs, and his lows. And the way Genesis is set up is 50 chapters. The first major chunk, so the first 11 chapters, deal with God's relationship with the whole world. And the remaining chapters deal with four generations. So Abraham is one of them, and now we're going to read about the next generation. So verse 12, we're going on. This is the account of the family of Ishmael, the son of Abraham, through Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant. Here is a list by their names and clans of Ishmael's descendants. The oldest was Nebaioth, followed by Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Jafish, and Kedama. These 12 sons of Ishmael became the founders of 12 tribes named after them, listed according to the places they settled and camped. Ishmael lived for 137 years, then he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. Ishmael's descendants occupied the region from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt in the direction of Asher. There they lived in open hostility toward all their relatives. Here we have another genealogy. Quite boring to some, quite fascinating to me. (laughs) The genealogies are part of God's gracious promise made to Abraham. Because remember, 
To understand Genesis, you have to understand this promise. He says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And so when you see a genealogy, you're seeing this promise being fulfilled. And you think that's amazing. That's amazing. And in this, these few verses here, this is kind of the sandwich of genealogies. It's a good sandwich for me. You have this genealogy, and then you have Abraham's death, and you have another genealogy. And the writer, Moses, he's doing this on purpose, because this is what happened, but he's showing that God's graciousness to fulfill his promise to Abraham is coming true as we read these genealogies. So when you see a genealogy, you think, wow, that is a promise-keeping God, and there's nothing that can stop him. And we continue in verse 19. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paran Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. So when Rebekah had met her beloved Isaac and heard him speak of this promise of, of numerous descendants, she expected to have a son. She expected to have children. She expected to be pregnant soon. But that didn't happen to Rebekah. And now 20 years had passed. She's remembering this promise. Isaac is approaching 60, you know, and Rebekah was still without a child. Yet Isaac's brother Ishmael had already 12 kids. So maybe there's this, this longing in Rebecca, looking at Ishmael and, and her wife, and there's some jealousy there. I'm speculating here. I shouldn't do that. But tw- 20 years have passed, and there's a cultural expectation for you to have a ton of kids. That's in my culture, too. My mom is always on me about having more kids. I say, we're done now. We have three. And so what, is, what, is, what does Isaac do? He, he prays. He sees that his wife is without a child. And he doesn't want to resort to what his father had done in, in just getting a slave woman pregnant. Rather, he prayed. He didn't resort to his own ways, and he prayed. Verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And so to pray, to go into prayer like we had done just a moment ago, it's that we pray because we believe God is who He says He is. That we believe His promises. And right here, Isaac is believing God's promise to Abraham, and it will be fulfilled. How long has he been praying? Five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years now? She's without a child? And they're distressed. And the culture around them is giving them pressure. And this promise is, seems like it's dwindling. And behold, as we continue in verse 21, the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. Twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. So, so in the original language, it's written in Hebrew. It's not written in English. 
The Hebrew, it sounds more like um, when the, the two children are struggling in the womb. It's, it's, it's translated, the children smash themselves together inside of her. That's a great translation. That's the way it should be written. Because you're like, wah! They smash, like, what is that about? And then, and then verse 23, it explains what's going on. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other. Your older son will serve your younger son. So she's learning that she would have twins and that they would father two nations that would be divided and oppose each other. And typically, the younger serve the older. But right here, God is saying it's going to be reversed. These conventional rights that the older son will serve the younger son. We continue in verse 24. And when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she indeed had twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. It's kind of funny. So they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. So this conflict that occurs between these brothers, it's a theme that is throughout Genesis. It began with Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve. It's the first murder, Cain and Abel. And it's a constant reminder of the impact of sin in the life of humanity. That we rebel against not only God, but one another. That we smash together in war, in our households, at work, in our relationships, and we are all tainted with the curse of sin. This negative impact from the very first sin in the garden, in the perfect garden, was tainted. And this is one of the outpourings. The twins are divided. But despite this negative impact, God sovereignly ensures the well-being of Abraham's genealogy through whom the entire world would be blessed. Rebecca learned that in the battle in her womb, she was not in control of this. She did not ask for this, but this was part of God's gracious plan to bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Remember how I said I'm going to get you to love genealogies? Welcome to Genealogy 101. Next slide, please. The family tree of Abraham. Here we go. Let's look at this thing. This is amazing. I'm going to switch this with... My wedding photo. You got, you got Abraham and Sarah's uh, slave woman, Hagar, and they have Ishmael. Sarah and Abraham have Isaac. And you see this tree. We're not going to go over the whole thing. But as you look at that, and these are the chapters where you find these stories, Genesis 12, 25. If you're listening on the podcast, it's just a picture of, of people having babies. <laughs> oh yeah, that doesn't come across right. It's like animated photos. <laughs> family tree, there's a family tree. There we go, there we go. Not picture of people have babies. It's a family tree. Should just stick with the text. So with, with Abraham, we're seeing this promise fulfilled. And as you read Genesis, you're simply reading the stories of these people. Because Genesis is a story. And we're reading about people in this story and God's relationship with them. 
And so this is Abraham's family tree. And now into the next slide, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to show you why genealogy is so important. I'm going to quiz you guys on this later. If anyone has this memorized, I will give you a dollar. <laughs> but check it out. You have this genealogy that began with the first man, Adam, and his children, his descendants. Then you had Noah. And then you go up and you have Abraham. This is what we're reading about. Isaac, Jacob, this is where we are. And then they're going to have descendants, and the generation will lead to this man, King David. And God graciously uses King David, who is faulty. He killed his friend and slept with his wife, using his kingly powers to do so. God graciously uses David, and then he has a descendant, and he has descendants this way. And then if you follow him, all the way to the end here, you have Joseph from the line of David. And you have Mary from the line of David. And then you have what the Bible describes as the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So the promise made in the very first book, Genesis in chapter 12, to make descendants who will bless the world. How is that going to happen? It's through these awesome genealogies. And it lands in the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and He will reverse the curse through the genealogy of Abraham, just like God had promised. That is spectacular beyond comprehension. We're, we're in the Old Testament right now. The first book of the New Testament is called Matthew. This man, Matthew, he, he's making an account of Jesus, his life and his death and his followers. This is the first thing he writes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is profound. The genealogy follows all the way through the entire Bible, and here we have it land on Jesus Christ, who will reverse the curse. Genealogies, people. Genealogies. Moving on. Chapter 20, or, uh, verse 27. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Now, if you're the firstborn son in this culture, it is your responsibility to kind of take over the family bloodline. You have a lot of responsibilities, and there's a lot of pressure on the firstborn son. So that's what they're talking about. But trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Verse 32, look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, First you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn son. Esau dismissed his right as the birthright as the firstborn. He didn't really care. He's like, I'm hungry. Give me that stew. You can have it. He didn't really care. 
about it. And we can also criticize Jacob for exploiting his brother at a moment of weakness to get his birthright, but Esau was still indifferent to selling his birthright. So Jacob is guilty of selfish and unbrotherly behavior. He doesn't care about his birthright. He's someone with no ability to regard spiritual values as being more important than physical appetite. I'm going to say that again. He's someone with no ability to regard spiritual values as being more important than physical appetite. He's saying, what I want is more important than what God has designed. And I will go after what I want. My appetites. Whether it's food at this moment, whether it's sex, whether it's fame, whether it's money, we chase our own appetites rather what God has designed us to do. And so what we learn about Jacob and Esau, we're not learning from their good behavior. It's not where the lesson is learned. The lesson is found in their faults. Because Jacob and Esau demonstrate our heart. They demonstrate our heart. Because people are hopelessly self-centered and incapable by themselves of doing constant good. Look at your day. Look at your week. Look at your month. Look at your month. Have you consistently done what is right? No, because we can't. Because we're selfish if we're honest, aren't we? We do what we want. We change stories so we look better. Esau and Jacob, they reflect our hearts. Jacob is this schemer. And Esau is this free spirit who lives for his appetites. It's very Yukon. You just said, we're just going to do what I want. I'm going to go where I want. I'm going to live in a bush. I'm going to do everything for me. That's not part of God's design. But this is us. <coughs> but God's grace is not changed by our faults. Because as we saw in the genealogies, God still keeps his promises even though people are screw-ups. Verse 26, a severe famine now struck the land as it happened before in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. Or sorry, not verse 26, chapter 26. Chapter 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I will hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, she is my sister. Pause. What's going on here? <laughs> hey, like father, like son. If you've, read, if you've been following us at all before, what's happening here is Isaac is scared to die because, in layman's terms, Rebekah is really beautiful, really hot, and he's afraid that people are going to kill him to take his wife. I've seen this before, says Isaac. My dad did it. Now I'm going to do it. So he said, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she is my wife, he thought. They will kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. You don't do that to your sister. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, she's obviously your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? 
because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. So here's the thing. We laugh at this, but this is, we do this. So Isaac trusted the reality of God's gracious presence. God is with me. I know God is real. He's here, if you're a believer. So our trust is in God's gracious presence. We know that, but we don't act like that. Is that not our case? If you're a believer here, I trust God and know that intellectually. I have a mug I read every morning, Harrison, that says, trust in God. We know that, but we don't live it always. Isaac did not believe that God was with him. That's why he resorted to the old wife is my sister trick. The oldest trick in the book, apparently. So he intellectually believed this, but in his heart he did not. Because if he had, he would have never betrayed his wife. He threw his wife under the bus and disobeyed God to look after himself. And believers, here's a glimpse into our own souls. It's one thing to mentally affirm that God is gracious and always with us, but it's quite another thing to have it rule our day to day. To embrace the sure knowledge that God is graciously present with us and protect us. If we believe that, what a difference it makes in our lives. If we really trust Him, we don't resort to our own ways. I remember us having the soccer practice at the University of Victoria. We're playing this game. We're just trying to kick a ball. Soccer is ridiculous, but amazing. So we're just trying to kick this ball into the other side like tennis, but it's with a soccer ball. And, but you do it in a team. And, uh, you know, whenever the ball like, just lands on the line or on the outside of the line, and the referee doesn't catch it or a coach doesn't catch it, they would say, quack. That's what they called me, Harrison Quack. They'd say, quack. Quack never lies. Where'd it go? I was like, that was in. <laughs> They're good, okay, move on. And they would always just trust me until one time <laughs> I really wanted to win. So the truth didn't matter at this point. And they said, Quack, was it in or was it out? And I kicked it and it was out and I knew it was out and I lied. That seems small. But at that very moment, I loved myself and my appetites and my desires more than I love God and I disobeyed God more than anything. I shouldn't have done that. This is what one writer put. Recognizing God's presence crushes the temptation to compromise. God's gracious presence puts our fears to flight. It instills confidence in steel. It protects us and our loved ones. It upholds the name of God. He blew it. I blew it at that soccer practice and I actually... Don't follow God the way I should every day. And this is the response that Abimelech gives in verse 10. How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaims. One of my people might easily have taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. This is a very sorry situation. A non-believer is rightly judging the conduct of a believer. He's crying out, hypocrisy. You're a liar. And hypocrisy is alive and well in my own life and in our church and in our churches. Is that not one of the biggest, 
deterrence of people not coming to church. You ask people, why don't you go to church? Because you're a bunch of what? Hypocrites. That is the number one reason. And here, here we have a man who claims to follow God, and we have the sorry situation where a non-believer calls him out. Because we must understand that we too are being watched, not only by God, but by the world. And when we sin, we might, we, you must know that others are watching, that the world is watching us. That when a pastor fails in their life, it's all over the news. And I don't want to get into the fake news and all that stuff, but people want to show that. Look it. You claim to follow this good God, but you're full of hypocrisy. It's not easy to forget that kind of stuff. Where people say, yeah, I used to go to church, but so-and-so put himself first and couldn't do it with it anymore. Yet God lavished grace upon Isaac. This is grace. This is grace unleashed. This is grace unhindered. His, God's promises have... They're not changed by what we do and how we mess up. Continuing in verse 12, When Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted. For the Lord, what? Blessed him. He became a very rich man and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father Abraham. Finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country. Go somewhere else, he said, for you have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away to Gerar Valley where he set up their tents and settled down. He reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given him, given them. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But then the shepherds from Gerar came and claimed the spring. This is our water, they said. And they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So Isaac named the well Isek, which means argument. Isaac's men then dug another well, but again, there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug another well. This time, there was no dispute over it, so Isaac named the place Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last, the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. The amazing thing here is that Isaac kept finding water in a time of famine. How does this happen? This is amazing grace that Isaac would still have water to find and his crops would grow. Verse 23. From there Isaac moved to Beersheba where the Lord appeared to him on the night of his arrival. I am the God of your father, Abraham, he said. Do not be afraid, for I am with you and will bless you. I will multiply your descendants and they will become a great nation. I will do this because of my promise to Abraham, my servant. Then Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place and his servants dug another well. When you believe the graciousness of God, the Bible always says it leads us to life change and transformation. It leads us to worship. 
And one day King Abimelech came from Gerar with his advisor, Ahuza, and also Phicol, his army commander. Why have you come here? Isaac asked. You obviously hate me since you kicked me off your land. They replied, we can plainly see that the Lord is with you. So we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you. Let's make a covenant. Swear that you will not harm us, just as we have never troubled you. We have always treated you well, and we sent you away from us in peace. And now look how the Lord has blessed you. So these non-believers are saying, wow, the God, God is clearly with you. Let's make a truce. Let's make a truce together. Let's, let's, let's have peace. These non-believers are saying, wow, it is so clear that God is with you. That we don't want any harm. We don't want to harm you. Let's, let's live in peace. So God's gracious presence was seen by these non-believers. And people look to you, believers, as you go through the ups and downs of life. And do they say things like that? I've shared this story once before. It's about that troubled young man, Dylan Roof, where in the States he went into that church and he shot and killed many people. And when he was, he got the death sentence and his final, the victims can make their final statement. The victims' families and friends and they can speak to Dylan Roof via video. And Dylan is standing there, he is handcuffed, there are guards and there's a video link and people can say what they want to Dylan. The moms, the daughters, the sons. And what did you see? I don't know if you ever saw that when it was live broadcast. Maybe you can look it up on YouTube. As these victims' families are going to this screen to talk to Dylan and say whatever they want, time and time again, they say, I forgive you, Dylan. I forgive you, even though you took my daughter away, or my mother, or my grandmother. He said, I forgive you. Person after person after person, these believers in Christ who have been forgiven of so much, forgave Dylan for something so reckless, so sinful. And surely as the world is watching that, they see the gracious presence of God in their life. And so Isaac celebrates this truce. Verse 30. So Isaac prepared a covenant feast to celebrate the treaty and they ate and drank together early the next morning. They each took a solemn oath not to interfere with each other. Then Isaac sent them home again and they left him in peace. That very day, Isaac's servants came and told him about a new well they had dug. We found water, they exclaimed. So Isaac named the well Sheba, which means oath. And to this day, the town that grew up there is called Beersheba, which means well of the oath. At the age of 40, Esau married two Hittite wives, Judith, the daughter of Beri, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon. But Esau's wives made life miserable for Isaac and Rebecca. It's a strange ending. But we see the graciousness of God seen throughout Genesis, not without its troubles. In your life, you will come across troubles. If you lived any length of time, life is hard, and you know that. As you get older, things don't work the way they should. But hey, Abraham, 138, remarried it's pretty good but when we think that God's graciousness he promises graciousness to anyone who would follow anybody we see it throughout Genesis and we see it throughout the whole Bible saying 
Come follow me. This is the way. I'm with you. I'm gracious. You're going to screw up. I know that. I still love you. I'll still care for you. I'll still bless you. So when we think of these amazing realities, whether you sit here having known God your whole life or maybe you're just contemplating it for the first time, I have some questions for you. Do you believe that God's grace is with you right now? Do you believe that God's grace will be with you what you're facing this week, this month, this year? Do you believe that God's grace is with you in your hurt, in your pain, in your suffering, when you feel alone and nobody's there? And he says, I'm here. Do you believe this? And if you do, then we do not fear. There is nothing to be afraid of because God is with us. What do we go to then? What else do we go to when God himself says, I am for you, I'm not against you. Come to me, I'm with you. I will graciously be by your side. Follow him with all your heart. Whoever you are in this room, if you don't know him, follow him. He's saying, come to me. Drink deeply from the wells of his graciousness. Because God's grace is not changed by our our shortcomings and our failures and our difficulties. And we all have failures. I do. In my parenting, in my marriage. I'm not using that as an excuse, but I know that God has forgiven me and God grant me grace and wisdom to treat my wife the way I should, to speak to my kids the way I should. God's grace is not changed by, by us. Tradition does not determine His grace. Grace does not bow down to anything. His graciousness transcends all human convention. And God's purposes are set and they're incomprehensible. I stand here before you speaking of this amazing, infinite God. Who are we? Who are we to talk of this God? And he says, I love you. He's incomprehensibly amazing. He is loving. He is righteous. He is just. He is good in all that he does. And because we are so sinful... And we cannot save ourselves. Our only possible hope is in the gracious sacrifice of his only son, the promised son of Abraham. God's son, God's only son, in Christ, he graciously suffered the price that we should have paid for our sin. And he says, come to me. And grace, grace is not earned. You do not earn grace like the Mormons teach. I remember asking a missionary, is is salvation like a ladder you climb up? Or is it like a man in a helicopter reaching down to a dead body in the river, giving it new life? They say it's like a ladder. The Mormons say this. The Jehovah's Witnesses say this. Every other religion is by works. Christianity is the only faith, the only worldview, the only religion that says it's grace alone, and you do not earn it. Grace is undeserving. Because if grace comes through our efforts, it's not grace. And there's grace for all of us. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. God's grace is for you. If we come to Christ. And if you do come, you will discover that it is all of God. That it is all of grace from beginning to end, it's been him who's walked alongside you, who's been so gracious to you, 
into me for his own glory and for our joy. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your graciousness. Thank you so much for your love. Would we know it, not only in our minds, but in our hearts? Would we experience your glory and your graciousness? That we would not fear, despite what the world throws at us and what our, whatever we're going through, that we would know you are there. In your name we pray. Amen.